Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Snafu. Please visit our website and our Patreon page for bonus content such as pictures of the characters, maps of the airfield, Q&A episodes, and much, much more. This podcast contains explicit content that may not be suitable for some audience members. Listener's discretion is advised. Professor Keller was sitting behind his desk reading his newspaper. His glasses rested towards the end of his nose and his eyebrows were scrunched together due to the professor having laser-like focus on what he was reading. He was a tall and lean man, standing at six feet tall and weighed 150 pounds. Judging by his baldness and the wrinkles around his eyes and his mouth, he looked to be in his late 50s. He taught history at the University of Pittsburgh and had a reputation for becoming close with the students. Many of the young men who studied under him were enamored with him due to his unique and gentle charisma. He looked at his students when they talked to him. He listened to simply understand, not to merely reply, and he taught with passion and conviction. His time during the First World War had given him a perspective on history that many of the professors who he worked with simply did not have. He experienced the Great War and saw what humans could do to other humans. He saw men at their worst and yet helped to keep them going, a trait that overflowed into his job as a professor. In combat, strangers became brothers in a matter of hours under intense artillery barrages. And in his classroom... Awkward college students became sons in a matter of days under his intense lectures and speeches. A knocking on the door rung throughout the small office. The professor didn't even move his head or stop reading. He just said, I'm in. The door of the office opened and an average height man with brown hair walked in. Oh, Jack, what do I owe this pleasure? Professor Keller asked. Hi, Professor. I just, can I talk to you for a moment? Asked Jack. Absolutely. It would be my pleasure. Here, take a seat. Make yourself comfortable. Professor Keller said as he got up from his seat behind his desk and proceeded to walk over to the two chairs sitting in front of his desk. He moved the chairs so that they would face each other and left a small round table to act as a coffee table between them. Coffee? Professor Keller asked. Oh, no thank you, sir, Jack responded. The professor then sat down on the French-style wooden armchair that matched the one Jack was sitting in. Jack was dressed in a white dress shirt, brown tie, and had over top of it a cream-colored sweater. He looked like he hadn't slept in days. So what brings you in today? I haven't seen you since the semester ended, the professor asked. Yeah, I've been meaning to come by and say hi. I've just been real busy. Mr. Knowles goes light on his lectures but goes heavy on his assignments. Jack joked with a smile upon his face. (laughs) Damn professors, Professor Keller joked. Yeah, damn professors. Why can't they be all like you, Mr. Keller? Jack said. I don't know, son. Once I find out, I'll let you know. Thanks. So, um, you know, I just... The reason why I came here today is... um, Jack began to talk, but kept pausing and stumbling over his words. Is everything okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just... um, I think it's... I think it's time that I, you know... um, Joined up. Join up as in the army? Professor Keller asked. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking army or maybe the army air corps, Jack said. What made you decide this? 
Professor Keller questioned. Well, it's just a lot of my classmates have already been enlisted or have been called up. And I just don't want to be the odd man out at this point, Jack confessed. Ah, so the peer pressure of your peers has caused you to consider joining the service, prompted Professor Keller. Yeah, and I don't know, I'm still in shock over the whole Pearl Harbor attack, Jack explained further. Did you know anybody at Pearl? Professor Keller asked. No, did you? Jack countered. No, I knew people who knew someone at Pearl, but they all have serious anger in their veins. Doesn't look like you have that same anger. So is it just the peer pressure then? Professor Keller prodded some more. I guess, Jack added. Any other reason? Why you're thinking about joining? Jack paused for a moment, thinking of an answer to give. Professor Keller could see that Jack was in deep thought, and after 30 seconds of silence, Jack spoke up, saying, Truth is, I, I want to join. I've always wanted to join the military. Is that so? Professor Keller questioned. Yeah, you know, ever since I was a boy, I've always been fascinated with military history. I mean, when I was 14 years old, I was reading books like Red Badge of Courage and books on the Civil War. I've studied battles like Little Round Top, Custer's Charge, and the Battle of Bunker Hill. I, I was able to read those as far back as I was able to read. And wasn't your father in the cavalry in the Great War? The professor asked. Yes, he was, Jack confirmed. What does he say about this? Professor Keller asked. Well, he, um, you know, he, you didn't tell him? No, sir. Why not? Um, I don't know. I just, I don't know how he's going to react. I see. Yeah, and I just thought, well, since you were, you know, since you're something of an academic uncle to me, I thank you. You're welcome. I just, I wanted to see if, you know, if, um, if I could talk you out of it. Jack paused for a moment, feeling uncomfortable with the thought that the Professor Keller was able to read him so well. Yeah, was Jack's only response. Well, son, with my experience of war, I wouldn't wish it upon my worst enemy. Hell, I felt bad for our enemy who had to endure the hell we put them through. It's something that affects you the rest of your life, that is, if you survive it. Has it affected you, Professor? Jack asked before quickly realizing how idiotic his question was. More than you know, son. When I was in France, I became a person my parents and wife never knew before and for the most part since. But that man still lives and haunts my dreams. I eat it, sleep it, curse it. Every moment of my day, I think about and relive that ghastly realm that is war. Do you regret it? Asked Jack. To be honest with you, Jack, no.
One year later, March 6th, 1944, United States Army Air Force Station 186, Thurlow, England, 0532. Within seconds of Colonel Poole's announcement, the room was then filled with sounds of men making whistling sounds, hooting and hollering inside comments. However, there were some more men who groaned and moaned with pain and anguish over the news. The boss, Jack, and the others looked around the room at how people were reacting. From where Jack could see, most of the men looked excited. Others looked worried and scared. But what troubled him most was, those who were excited, their faces fell quickly, and expressions of fear, anxiety, and darkness appeared on their eyes, and the reality of where they were going had settled in. Berlin, they knew, was the most fortified city in all of Nazi-fortified Europe, with airfields, flak batteries, and smoke screens, of which were unlike anything else the men of the 300th had ever seen up until that point. Colonel Poole announced to the men that he was so excited for today's mission that he felt it was only necessary if he flew the mission with his men. So the colonel himself would be flying the lead plane of the 300th Bombardment Group as an observer. This news did miracles on the morale of the men in that room, who were nervous about the day's possible events. The thought of having the commanding officer riding off to battle with them seemed to be patriotic and poetic and even heroic. How bad could it be if the CO was choosing to fly with us, Jack thought to himself. They learned that their target for that day would be to a large ball bearing factory on the eastern end of the capital city. To the target and back would be a grand total of 1,552 miles, a distance that meant that the bombers would be low on gasoline when they returned, so there would be little to no room for navigational errors. Once Colonel Poole finished the overview of the mission, he then gave the stage to the intelligence officer who was a young, short, blonde-haired man from Erie, Pennsylvania. His name was Captain Ronald Burnett, who at the age of 26 years old was one of the youngest men in the upper brass. His youthful face, soft-spoken tone, and nervous demeanor earned him many nicknames and made him the butt of many jokes around the airmen. Captain Burnett walked towards the middle of the stage with a long pole in his hand that resembled that of a pool stick in his right hand. In his left hand was a packet of papers that he was going to be using as he gave his intelligence briefing. Captain Burnett began speaking, but in an awkwardly loud tone, showing the men that he was not comfortable speaking to battle-hardened airmen, no matter how many times he had done it before. Using the long-pointed stick, he walked the men through their mission. The 300th Bombardment Group was going to start engines around 6.30 in the morning, and the lead plane, piloted by Major Roger Key of the 529th Squadron, would be running down the runway at 0650. Then the 300th would form up and climb to 8,000 feet, where they would link up with Groups 1 and 2, which were over the town of Biggleswade, which sat 11 miles southeast of Bedford. Then the group would turn to the north and head to their second waypoint, which would be 10,000 feet above the town of Huntington, England. There, the group, which would only consist of 190-some airplanes, would fly to their third waypoint, which was 15,000 feet above the little town of Mudford, which lay on the north side of the Thetford Forest land. It would be at this waypoint that the fourth and fifth group would link up with the formation, making the first wave of bombers that the 300th would be flying in 325 bombers strong. While on their way across the North Sea, seven more groups that made up the second wave of bombers would be following the formation 30 minutes behind. This meant 
that the entire formation from start to finish would be a grand total of over 900 heavy bombers stretched out over a column 10 miles long. The sheer size of the formation eased both Jack and the boss's nerves. This is why the colonel is willing to fly with us today, Jack thought to himself. How in the world are the Germans even going to be able to make a single attack on a formation when they've got 900 heavily armed B-17s, each one at least having 1350 caliber machine guns pointed right at them, Jack thought further. Leaning in towards the boss, Jack softly said, Boss, are we going to have one hell of a first mission or what? I know, I can't believe it. Look over at Rosie, the boss said using his head to point over to where Rosie was sitting. Jack leaned back to catch a glimpse. Rosie's eyes were open wider than they had ever been. He listened intensely, with the biggest smile upon his face, like that of a young man seeing a woman's naked body for the first time. Captain Burnett then described the flight path the formation would take once they made it to the coast. Leveling out at 25,000 feet and cruising at 150 miles an hour, the formation would enter through Nazi-fortified Europe through a small opening in the Nazi coastal defenses near the town of Leeuwenwarden, Holland. From there, the formation would travel to the German city of Kloppenburg. It would jump up to 26,000 feet. Once there, the formation would fly straight to Berlin. Once Captain Burnett explained the flight path, he then shared with the group that they would have 150 of the new P-51 Mustangs to escort the bombers to and from the target, something that was only recently a possibility. Finally, we get some escort love, shouted a voice from behind Jack and the others. The room burst into laughter. Captain Burnett didn't seem to find the comment humorous, but instead stuttered and stammered over his words, continuing his briefing. He further explained that the formation would be flying through two dozen Nazi fighter air drones, meaning that nearly every fighter in the German Luftwaffe within a 200-mile radius was going to be in the air that day. This news made people like Rosie all too happy to hear. The thought of all the potential Nazi fighter planes he could shoot down made him grin from ear to ear. It's going to be like shooting fish in a barrel, Rosie thought to himself. Then the lights inside of the hut turned off, and a white screen was pulled down over the wall map of Europe. A flick of a switch turned on an overhead projector which illuminated the room with just enough light for the men to see what they were writing when they were taking notes. This was when Rosa got out a small notebook and a small pencil from his right jacket pocket and began to prepare himself. Captain Burnett then put the first slide up on the glass top, which then projected a picture of a black and white aerial photograph with long, narrow buildings surrounded by city blocks of smaller buildings. Captain Barnett announced that the picture was that of the target, the NKF ball bearing plant in a subsection of East Berlin. To get to it, the formation would have to fly directly over the heart of downtown Berlin. Barnett also announced that the city is home to some of the thickest, most accurate, and dangerous flak batteries the 8th had ever seen. In fact, one of the key points on the aerial photograph was one of three infamous flak towers, which sat towards the bottom right portion of the screen. Each tower, which looked like a castle made from reinforced concrete, had eight large 88mm flak guns pointed on the top. This tower stood out so much compared to the other buildings that Captain Barnett directed the bombardiers to use the flak tower as a guiding point to help them find the target if the target was covered by clouds or smoke screens. This put a knot in Annie's stomach. Why are we using guns pointed at us as beacons to get us to the target? What were all those buildings surrounding the target area made of? 
houses, schools, or restaurants, he thought to himself. He knew that Rosie would find out more about the target from his bombardier's briefing that he was going to be going to once the overview briefing was over, but nothing that the captain was saying was making him feel good or safe. After hearing last-minute information on the intelligence part of the briefing, the ordnance officer, weather officer, and assembly officer all stepped up and gave their spiels. After the main briefing was over with, the men all got up and quickly made their way to where their individual briefings were being held. Bombardiers made their way over to the auxiliary hut, where they would study large maps of the target and more aerial photographs. Pilots made their way over to the pilot briefing, which was being held in one of the secondary briefing huts, which is where currently the gunners were being briefed as well. Navigators would stay in the main briefing hall for their briefing. About 15 minutes later, the boss and Jack walked out of the briefing hut and into the cold morning air. The sun was just starting to appear over the horizon, and after looking at his wristwatch, Jack saw that it was 0610, 20 minutes away from engine start. He knew that they had to get moving fast. The boss, looking for Andy and Rosie among the swarms of other airmen who were all walking around and bumping into each other, caught a glimpse of someone that he knew. It was Al. Al was walking down the main road known as Pennsylvania Avenue, headed towards where the dozens and dozens of troop trucks, jeeps, and other vehicles were waiting. These vehicles would take their men to their planes, the which were parked at their hard stands. Al was dressed in his thick flying clothes and had in his hands his flight bag with all of his equipment inside. His parachute harness and May West floating vest were already on him. Al, the boss shouted. Al looked over to his left at both the boss and Jack, and with a look of shock replied, What took you guys so long? We've been all been waiting. We had our own briefings. Listen, where is everyone? The boss asked. Al pointed in the direction that he was walking, and the boss then saw a troop truck which was nearly halfway filled with airmen. The only men he could recognize was Willie and Tommy. That was because they had their hats off. Everyone else was dressed in their thick flying clothes and had their parachute harnesses already on. Okay, wait for us. Once we see Annie and Rosie, we'll be there, the boss declared to Al, patting him on the back. Al nodded his head and began running towards the troop trucks, slithering between and around the other airmen who seemed to be taking their time. At the troop truck, Willie, Skimpy, Tommy, Beans, and Mills were awaiting the officers to arrive so they could get to their airplane. The men from Hellfire from above were all sitting inside the troop truck, with Jodite standing towards the tailgate of the Studebaker US-6 6x6 truck bed. Willie and Tommy both were standing to the left of the back of the truck. Tommy had his thick flying clothes on and had just put on both sets of his gloves and his leather flying helmet. Even his rubber A8 oxygen mask was attached to the left side of his helmet and was left hanging. Willie, on the other hand, didn't have his parachute harness on. His A11 leather flying helmet was with his other equipment, which was still inside of his bag, laying on the bed of the truck. Willie's pants were spotless, creased perfectly, and he smelled of a very refreshing cologne. His hair was slicked back, and his face was freshly shaved. Willie, how in the hell are you not freezing your ass off right now? Tommy asked as he stood with his hands in his jacket pocket, looking visibly cold. Willie looked up at Tommy and saw that his face was pale white and responded, I'm from Chicago, where Colwish can shoot. How are you going to survive up there? Willie asked. 
I have no idea. I was going to wait until we got up into the air and then use one of the heating elements at one of the stations, but I think I'm going to freeze to death before we even get up there. Just then, Al arrived back at the truck. Al then explained to the men that the officers would be arriving at any moment. Well, good. I can't wait anymore in this freezing shithole, Tommy thundered. You do realize it's only going to get colder once we're up there, commented Al. Yeah, I know that, but at least we're in a place I can stick my heating cord. Although I'm about to stick it up your ass, Al. Tommy muttered back. Right, well, I'm not going to wait anymore. Al said throwing his bag into the back of the truck, and then lifting up his hands, Jodite helped pull Al into the bed of the truck. Once Al got inside of the dark canvas-covered truck bed, he took a seat next to Mills, who was sitting on the left side of the truck bed, on a wooden bench. He was dressed in his flight clothes and had his flying leather helmet on. Al looked over at Mills and chuckled to himself. What? Mills asked. Nothing, just... You, um... You look like an Italian woman wearing one of those babushkas, Al commented. A few of the men, including Skimpy, laughed. I do not, Mills fired. Yeah, you actually do, Jodai commented. I'm not even Italian, Mills fired back. With that helmet around your head, yeah, you do. Beans, who was sitting next to Mills, blurted out. Oh, is that right? Well, you look like a, um... Mills paused, waiting for something to enter into his mind. Instead of the typical leather helmet, Beans wore a B2 leather hat with the bill bent upward and had the words Beans drawn on the underside of the brim. It was an older hat that he had acquired during gunnery training back in the States, and it was given to him by an old friend as a joke, but Beans wore this hat with pride. Not coming up with anything to say, Mills slumped back and said, Damn it, never mind. You couldn't come up with anything else to say? Nothing? Al asked. Shut it, Al. Don't you have a book to go read or something? Mill said. Yeah. Okay, like that's not getting old. Go ahead, make fun of my intelligence and thirst for knowledge, you Neanderthal. Al jabbed. Here come the officers, Jodite announced. Tommy and Willie had proceeded to get into the truck, and the officers followed suit. Once the men were all sitting inside the truck bed, that's when Bruce, who was sitting closest to the cab of the truck, pounded his fist two times in the back of the cab, letting the driver know it was time to go. The truck started and then began to drive off on the road that led to the airfield. While the truck drove down the road, the cold 35-degree air seemed to be getting sucked into the back of the truck with the canvas containing the cold air. Jack, who was sitting closest to the end of the truck bed, was by far the coldest one. Looking across the truck bed, he saw Andy, who looked terrified. His eyes looked off into the English countryside, which encased the airfield. Jack thought for a moment that he should say something to Andy, but he knew that Andy would just deny ever being scared and would only feel embarrassed, so Jack kept quiet. The truck took a right turn, which then took the men through where the hard stands of the 529th Squadron were located. Ten B-17s were parked at their own circle-shaped patch of concrete, known as hard stands. From the air, these hard stands, with their little paved section that went from the hard stand to the perimeter strip, looked like tree branches with spring blossoms at the end of each branch. As the truck passed by the other B-17s, the men could see other crews were suiting up and doing last-minute checks before they entered into their plane and got ready for takeoff. One B-17 named the Green Dragon 
stood out because both sides of the nose section of the older F model was detailed with an impressive painting of a green and black dragon with fire being blown out of its mouth in the direction of the nose cone, which housed two fifty caliber machine guns. The red, orange, and yellow colors of the flames could be seen from a long distance away, which puzzled Jack as he stared at the four engine art gallery. What puzzled him most was, he knew from the briefing that the Green Dragon was piloted by a Major Robert Key, who was going to be the plane and crew that the commanding officer, Commander Poole, would be flying in as an observer. Why would he put the base commander in a plane that stands out with its colorful nose art, Jack thought to himself. A minute later or so, the troop truck arrived at the hard stand of the 530th Squadron. The truck drove up to hard stand number 32, which housed Hellfire from above, the B-17 Mickey and his crew would be flying in. The truck stopped just in front of the B-17, and once the truck stopped moving, that's when Jack and Annie lowered their tailgate and jumped down from the truck bed, the others following suit. The boss and his crew's plane was just to the right of Mickey's plane, about 200 feet away. The men all gathered their things and started heading towards their plane when Jodi called for some of the boys to wait for a moment. Al, Mills, Beans, and Skimpy were the only ones who stopped walking and went over to where Jodi was standing. Good luck today, rookies. I'll be keeping my eye on you guys, Jodi said as he leaned in to fix Tommy's harness strap, which was twisted. Thanks, Jodi. We appreciate that, Al commented. If you guys make it through today, I'll buy every one of you guys a drink tonight. Jodi commented with a smile upon his face. Make it two drinks and you have yourself a deal, Mills joked. Deal. Remember, save your ammo. No need to waste it, Jodite finished as he shook Mills' hand. Got it. Thanks, Jodite, said Beans. All right, let's get some Jerry's today. Make Uncle Sam proud, Jodite finished before he turned around and made his way towards his plane. The boss and his crew had arrived at their beloved plane. The olive drab green painted B-17G was without a scratch. The black paint on the propellers reflected the cloudy sky that was above them. The nose art symbolized the attitude of the crew. A large painting of a gray bull outlined in red sat behind the navigator's window, just under the cockpit. Since the number two and three engines essentially blocked the painting, the words Load of Bull were painted in a red stencil lettering underneath the navigator's window on both sides of the nose. The boss looked at his plane with pride and admiration. He had waited a long time for this moment and didn't want to rush it. As the boss was taking in his plane, Rosie was the first one to reach the nose hatch and opened it. He threw his bag inside and proceeded to lift himself up into the hatch by flipping his legs in first. Andy followed suit. Jack arrived where the boss was standing and was taking in the plane along with him. She's beautiful, isn't she? The boss asked. She is. Granted, it'd look a lot better with the words bamboozled painted on it, Jack joked. The boss shot a look of annoyance at Jack before he looked straight again at the bomber. You ready to do our flight checks? Jack asked after a moment of silence. What, you want to rush this? The boss asked. Yeah, we don't have that much time. Jack commented, looking at his watch. What time is it? The boss asked. Quarter after, replied Jack. Yeah, I guess we should get started. All right, Buzzkill, let's go. The boss said as he grabbed his bag and walked with Jack to the nose hatch. In the waste compartment of the plane, Beans arrived at the waste compartment door first and proceeded to open it. 
The small curved door didn't even creak when he opened it. It was so new and fresh. Beans entered into the space, followed by Mills. The inside of the waste compartment looked like a metal tube with control cables running the length of the airplane. Along the floor of the waste compartment was a small, narrow wooden floor, which also ran the length of the small, narrow room. Along the curved walls were metal rivet ribs, which were spaced out almost two feet apart. Beans arrived at his station on board the bomber, which was the right waste gun. The large window had a thick piece of plexiglass covering it, with the single 50 caliber machine gun stationed in the middle of the window. Mills had arrived at his station, which was the left side waste gun, across from Beans. The two gunner's windows were staggered with the left gunner's window being further back in the plane, almost directly in the middle of the waste compartment. From where Mills was standing, he could see a majority of the left wing and the left horizontal stabilizer. Both gunners began looking over their guns, making sure nothing was jammed inside and the guns weren't damaged. While the two gunners looked over their station, Willie, Tommy, and Skimpy had entered and made their way to their stations, Willie and Tommy poking fun at each other as they did. Tommy was the first one of the three to arrive at his station, which was the ball turret section, at the front of the waste compartment. Since he had to wait until the plane was up in the air to get into his station, he checked his ammo belt and gear components of his turret to make sure everything looked fine. Skimpy was the next person to arrive at his station, which was the radio room, the compartment in front of the waste compartment. Skimpy sat down at his little radio desk, which was to the left of the radio room up against the front wall. Skimpy had a small window on each side of the radio room, which looked over the wings of the plane. Sitting on his radio desk was a black liaison receiving radio and a Morse code transmitter. Once Skippy had sat down, he opened his equipment bag and took out his red radio operator's notebook and a small pencil and sat them both on his desk. Willie walked through the radio room and then proceeded to walk through the narrow catwalk, which went through the bomb bay of the plane. The bomb bay was divided into two sections, with the small strip of metal known as the catwalk dividing the cavity. When the bomb doors were opened, the only thing that kept the airmen from falling off the catwalk and into the cold nothingness was a small piece of rope which ran the length of the catwalk. Halfway down the small catwalk were two thick sections of metal that made a V-shape as they ran from the catwalk to the top of the bomb bay. The section of metal was a foot and a half wide and three inches thick. This was the interior section where the bombs were being hung on. As Wills took a few careful steps through the bomb bay, he stopped for a moment and looked in awe at the 6,000 pounds of ordnance suspended in the bomb bay. Lining the interior of the bomb bay on both sides of the catwalk were the four 1,000-pound general-purpose demolition bombs, two on each side. The green-painted bombs looked massive in the small bomb bay. Lining the outer section of the bomb bay hung four 500-pound incendiary cluster bombs. Seeing the large amount of bombs made Willie wonder how the plane was even going to take off that morning. It looked so heavy. Willie arrived at his station, which was behind the cockpit in his top turret gun. His job was to stand between the pilot and co-pilot during flight and overlook the flight controls and read gauges to help the pilot and co-pilot not be overwhelmed. He was in charge of keeping the engines running and monitoring all systems while the plane was in flight, and when he wasn't doing that... He was to be in his top turret, defending the plane from incoming fighters from above.
It was a busy and stressful job that he was more than prepared for, so we thought. The boss and Jack were sitting in the cockpit going over the pre-flight checks together when they saw something approaching the plane from the right side. Jack looked and saw it was a jeep with someone familiar driving it. Hey, it's our guy. One of us should go over the exterior with him, Jack said looking at the boss. You want to? I'll finish the pre-flights, asked the boss. Sure. What's his name again? Jack asked after forgetting. Bill? The boss asked looking at Jack for confirmation. It's Butch, Willie suggested. That's it, Butch. Thanks, Willie, said Jack as he then got up and made his way down the nose hatch. Outside the plane, Jack met the short, stubby, scruffy-faced man known as Butch in front of the nose compartment where his Jeep was parked. Bruce, or Butch Abraham, was the 49-year-old crew chief mechanic for the boss and his crew. He and his three junior mechanics were in charge of keeping the bull, as he called it, up and running. Butch had been the one who painted the nose art for the boss's plane, and who also helped to get the plane in tip-top shape for that morning. The dark circles around his eyes gave witness to his devotion to his airplanes, as he would work nearly around the clock, fixing up, cleaning up, and preparing any one of the three planes he was assigned to for their missions. Good morning, Butch, Jack said, hoping he would get his name right. Yes, it is. Well, for me it is, anyway. You nervous at all, kid? Butch asked as he lit up a cigarette. Nervous? Not really, just anxious, replied Jack. Bullshit. I've seen many go on their first mission. You have that scared, shitless look on your face. It's okay, though. You got a great ship to take you there and back. You'll barely have to do any work. She's so well built, said Butch. Is that so? Oh, yeah. I polished her up nice and easy for you this morning. She's in good shape. I've never worked on a ship as nice as this one. Normally, I would walk you through overlooking the exterior, but honestly, there's no need. She's ready to go, but by all means, double-check my work, Butch added. I will, but not because I don't trust your work, mainly because if I don't, you know, the boss will get on me, Jack said, patting Butch on his shoulder. All right, well, if you need me, I'll hang around for a moment. Hey, would you or any of your guys like some coffee? Butch asked. Coffee? Sure. All right. I'll warn you, though, kid. My shit's called aviation fuel by some. If you don't like strong, I don't suggest you drink it. No, I like strong. I'll tell the guys when I head in, Jack said as he walked all over the underside of the bomber, checking it out to make sure everything was ready to go. About five minutes later, Jack notified the boss about the coffee offer. The boss then looked at his watch and saw that they had just ten minutes before the engines would start. He then notified the entire crew to meet him outside under the nose of the aircraft for something special. Within a minute or so, the men all exited the plane and made their way to the front where the boss was waiting for them. In the boss's hand was a small aluminum cup of coffee. Butch had several empty cups in the back of his jeep on hand, ready to hand out to any crew members that wanted his personal batch of morning brew. The men all stood in the circle just under the nose out of the plane. Butch handed out the almost full 8-ounce cups for Jack to disperse. Only the boss, Jack, Rosie, Willie, Tommy, and Mills took the coffee and were repulsed by the strong smell before they even took a sip. Here's the strongest cup of coffee that the world has ever known, given to us by none other than Mr. Butch himself, the boss said as he went to take a first sip. 
Oh, dear God, Butch. This isn't coffee, is it? The boss asked after taking a sip. At this point, all the men together took sips of the coffee and all reacted the same way, with the exception of Mills, who seemed to enjoy the hot beverage. Willie was thrown into a coughing fit and then dumped the cup of coffee out and saw the remains of coffee grinds at the bottom of his cup. Oh, what the hell? Willie said, lifting up the cup to show Butch. Oh, you got some grinds. Sorry about that. I didn't know this crew was made up of a bunch of pansies. Butch fired back, grabbing Willie's cup. This tastes like mud, if I'm being honest, Butch. Jack added. I told you, this coffee isn't for boys, it's for men. I'm sorry you boys can't take it, replied Butch. I like it. Tastes like the coffee I used to drink before work. Let me guess. Finely ground coffee with double the grinds. Mills inquired after taking several more sips. That's right. Made it myself with my own personal grinder and percolator. I've been drinking that stuff since I was a young asswipe like yourselves. Rosie, having taken out a cigarette from his chest pocket and was getting ready to light it, asked, So is that why you look like you've been aging in dog years? Getting a chuckle from the boss and the others, even Butch cracked a smile and a laugh before he leaned over towards Rosie, grabbed his lit cigarette, and proceeded to put it in his mouth and said back, that's my tax, you know, old mechanics fee. Fair enough, Rosie said, giving off a chuckle. All right, men, listen up. I don't have long. I want to make sure we get this done, the boss called out. Oh, you going to give us a pep talk now, boss, asked Tommy, who was still trying to force the cup of coffee down. Hey now, all kidding aside, today's a big day for us. Now, we're lucky we're all flying together for our first mission. Let's not make the brass regret putting us all together. Now, we're going to be flying deep into enemy territory today, and we're going to be going up against some of the best pilots the Third Reich has to offer. I know you boys are skilled at what you do. As the boss talked, Jack looked around at the other nine faces that were around him. They all looked anxious. They all looked like the faces of his former football teammates right before a big game. The coach would always let the team captain give some heroic speech in the locker room, right before they all ran out onto the field. Jack only wished he was about to run onto a grassy football field like he did back home. And remember, don't waste ammo. Make every shot count. It's going to be a long haul today, and I don't know how much action we're going to see over the next 8 or 10 hours. Skimpy, make sure you jot down everything you hear coming through our interphone. Down planes, what time fighters are spotted, everything. Okay? I know it seems like a lot, but we can sort through all of that once we go through the debriefing, okay? Any other questions? The boss asked the group. All nine heads shook and didn't respond. All right. Well, gentlemen, let's get ready. We have eight minutes till engine start. Let's get into our positions. Let's do radio and interphone checks, and let's get into position for takeoff. The boss finished. The boss and the others returned their metal cups back to Butch and thanked him once more for the coffee. Butch said final words of good luck to the men and watched them get into their planes, praying to God that they would all return home as they did. About eight minutes later, the boss and Jack were both sitting in the cockpit. Side windows slid open, waiting for the green flare to be fired into the air. Looking down at his watch, Jack could see that there was just 20 seconds left until 0630. The sun was almost all the way over the horizon, and the bright sunlight was just beaming from behind a dark cloud from the east end of the airfield. 
As Jack looked over it to face the direction of the sun, dozens of silhouettes from the bombers belonging to the 531st Squadron could be seen. They all sat still for a moment, almost like time itself had stopped. The cold air breezed through the opening of the cockpit and brushed up against Jack's face. That moment of peace was quickly brushed away when the sounds of a gun went off in the distance. A green flare appeared above the control tower, and that meant that the mission was starting. Together, both the Boston Jack went through their startup procedures, starting by turning on the number two engine, then the number three engine, and then engine number four, and finally engine number one. The entire procedure took a little over two minutes to complete, and before they knew it, all four engines on the metal beast were on and roaring into the cold English air. The enlisted men, with the exception of Willie, were all sitting on the raided compartment floor. Tommy, who was sitting up along the right side of the room, next to a stack of radios, reached into his pocket for a cigarette. As he did, Al, who was sitting next to him, looked at Tommy with surprise. The plane reeked of fuel, which was normal, but the fumes were so strong, Al couldn't believe that Tommy was even thinking about smoking. Giving Tommy a nudge on his shoulder, and then giving him a look of surprise and shock, received only a more confused look from Tommy. Al then pointed to his nose. Tommy then looked around the room and saw that everyone, including Skimpy, who was sitting in his radio operator's chair, was looking right at him with concern. Tommy then began to smell the fumes of gasoline, and was reminded of the potential dangers of smoking on board a 30-ton bomber loaded with fresh fuel and bombs. Putting the cigarette back into his pocket, he couldn't believe he was so careless. Was he really that nervous? Was it obvious to everyone how nervous he really was? Nobody looked as nervous as Tommy felt. This was the day he had been waiting for and thinking about for a little over a year. Was he going to regret leaving home so soon? If something happened to him, what would his mother think? Worst of all, what will it do to his father? His father loved his kids more than anything else, and he especially loved Tommy, and was the most upset to hear that Tommy had lied about his age and ran away from home to chase his dreams of glory and honor. This is not what any 18-year-old kid should be thinking about, he thought to himself. Up in the nose of the plane, Rosie sat on his bombardier's chair, which had him perched up looking through the large plexiglass nose. Behind him, sitting at his navigator's desk, was Andy, who was looking at a small picture that he had resting on his navigator's work desk. The picture was that of his mother and himself dressed for Easter service in 1934, just 10 years earlier. Andy then looked out of a small navigator's window at the two large propellers spinning just inches from where he was sitting. Before he knew it, he saw the ground crewmen run from underneath the nose section and away from the large plane, and as soon as they were in the clear, the plane began to move. One by one, each of the 24 B-17s left their hard stands and made their way down the small concrete path to the perimeter strip that outlined the entire airfield. With the boss helping to steer the large fortress, and Jack in controls of the brakes and tailwheel, Load of Bull made its way from the southern end of the airfield to the west side of the airfield, over by the main hangars and control tower. As they came to a full stop, Willie, who was standing between Jack and the boss, peered out through the left side cockpit window just behind the boss's seat and saw Chaplain Schwartz standing on the back of his jeep, watching the bombers go by. 
Below him, standing on the ground next to the jeep, was the Catholic chaplain, giving the signs of the cross to every plane that passed by him. Standing around the chaplains were dozens of other airmen, grounds crewmen, and other personnel. As Willie Levin looked out the right side window just behind Jack's seat, he saw even more airmen and personnel standing on the ground, watching planes go by. He noticed that each one of them looked at the impressive force with such vigor and pride. It was so apparent that it gave Willie a sense of confidence. We're finally doing it, Willie thought to himself. He couldn't help but smile as he went back to standing between both the jack and the boss, watching over engine gauges and helping the two pilots out any way he could. Just up ahead, the lead plane of the group, the Green Dragon, had just turned onto the large runway known as Runway 4 and sat for what seemed like half a lifetime. The boss, Jack, Rosie, and Andy and Willie all waited for the second flare gun to go off, signaling that it was time to take off. As they waited, the boss looked at the long line of B-17s that were in front of him. Every one of them would be dropping their payload onto the German capital city today, alongside his plane. The sudden realization of his part in the writing of history sent a shiver down his spine. He grew up hearing about great battles in history, but now he was going to be taking part in one himself. Oh, if my father could see me now, he thought to himself. What would Catherine be saying if she was standing in the grass, looking at her husband's warbird, aligned with dozens of others? Would she be as moved as he was? He thought to himself. All thoughts then were ceased when the second flare shot was sounded. Then the green dragon slowly roared down the runway, and about halfway down lifted up into the air like it was a weightless glider. The bomber then, with landing gear still down, turned to the left, signaling the direction that the other planes were to take once they got up in the air. One by one, each B-17 roared down the runway, only being 30 seconds behind the other. The boss and Jack worked together to move the bomber up and up until they arrived at the top of the runway. Then, as the boss steered the plane to the right and faced the center of the long concrete runway, both he and Jack looked at each other and took in a deep breath. Together, both pilots grabbed the awkward throttle and forced it up, with Jack releasing the brake and locking the tailwheel. The metal plane shook with the high power that all four engines were pounding out. For a moment, the plane felt like it was going to fall apart, the vibrations were so intense. But as the bull ran down the runway, picking up airspeed as it did, the boss pulled up on his yoke and the large fortress lifted up into the sky and both pilots angled the wheel to the left and banked the plane towards the northern end of the airfield, where they would arrive with the other bombers. Below them, the last remaining B-17s all roared down the road to hell and within minutes, the men were all on their way to Nazi-fortified Germany. Thank you for listening to Episode 4 of Snafu, a historical fiction podcast depicting the average life of a bomber crew in World War II. If you'd like more information about the podcast, please visit our website and our Patreon page. Both links are down in the show notes. There you can find pictures of the characters, maps of the airfield, and so much more. This podcast is produced by Canto 34 Studios, a DIY project helping to raise awareness to the brave young men who sacrificed their lives in the skies over Europe in World War II. I hope we do it justice. Thank you for listening, 
And stay tuned next week for episode five of Snafu, A New World.